The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Wednesday, February the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Of all the jobs in the Irish Times, one of the most prized is that of Washington correspondent, particularly during a presidential election year. Some weeks ago, that particular mantle passed to Keith Duggan, and ever since I've been dying to find out how he has been getting on as the primary season kicked off in the ice and snow, first of Iowa and then of New Hampshire. This year, though, the contests in both parties seem a bit lopsided, and the media pack already seems to be turning its attention to what, barring some kind of health event for one or other of the elderly contenders, seems like an inevitable reprise of the 2020 contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So what is the state of play in the US? Keith, you're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much, Hugh. Yeah, I think you summed it up perfectly there. So uh, you're settled in. You live in Washington, obviously, or you're, you're, you're staying in Washington and you've got an apartment there. But presumably the whole point of the gig is to get out of Washington a lot. Exactly. And that's how it started out for me here. Um, as I was as I was saying to Bernice uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I came over here, I went straight away to Iowa, as you mentioned, and then New Hampshire. And it was yeah, predictably uh, frozen and cold and bitter and all the rest. And it's absolutely gorgeous here and I today in, uh, in Washington, which is which is nice. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's very strange in terms of the election because those two states were my first experiences of it. You could really see, you know, the visible manifestations of it being election year in the sense of all the signs in the front gardens and, you know, quite a bit of crowd excitement for uh, for Donald Trump's appearances and um, good gatherings for Nikki Haley also. But I mean, since then, since the result of the New Hampshire primary, since Ramaswamy and DeSantis have abandoned their uh, their campaigns with uh, with <laughs> with undue haste really the air has gone out of it and there is that sense of inevitability that you're speaking about and Nikki Haley is sort of plowing well valiantly on down inside Carolina Donald Trump hasn't even bothered to campaign there yet and Joe Biden is you know the the nominee presumptive for the Democrats yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's this is just the nature of of the way it has panned out this time. Certainly on the Democratic side, he's an incumbent president and whatever about the reservations. And there are reservations, obviously, serious ones about him. He was always going to be the nominee once he put himself forward. Trump just built an unassailable lead before the whole thing started. But I wonder, is there something about the whole primary experience as a whole? The Democrats kind of broke the old system this year anyway, because they don't start in Iowa anymore. So that kind of link between the big Shazam, the showbiz starts in the snow of Iowa, was kind of broken anyway. And some weird stuff going on this week. There's caucuses and primaries in Nevada, but Trump already has a lock on it. So the whole system seems to be falling over. But funny, I was talking to a, a predecessor of yours in your job, who shall remain nameless, who was suggesting that maybe the whole primary thing had run its course a bit in the States now. 
Yeah, there is that conversation that's going on. I mean, yeah, you're, you're referring to like the Republican primary in Nevada. Um, bizarrely, Nikki Haley is on the primary ticket. Trump is on the caucus ticket. In terms of the GOP in Nevada, it's the caucus result that counts, uh, not, not, not the primary results. So it's sort of, it's almost two non, non competitions, if you like. And yeah, the Democrats, there was a sense that really New Hampshire and Iowa, just the demographics there was not really rep- representative of, of, of the states, which is, which is true. They're overwhelmingly white states. Uh, so I mean, South Carolina. Um, last weekend it was the first Democratic primary proper, and uh, Joe Biden won it by an absolute landslide, ninety percent. I'm not sure he was even there that weekend uh, when the results came in. The interesting thing about that, the only really interesting thing about that result was, I think there was ninety thousand fewer Democratic votes cast than there was in 2020, and there is, you know, there's a theory now that maybe those Democrats are going to register as Republicans and um, post, a, I guess, a protest vote or an anti-Trump vote uh, when the Republican primary comes up at the end of the month. Oh, interesting. So a little bit like what happened in New Hampshire, where an awful lot of her vote came from independents and Democrats. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whether that materialises remains to be seen, but it is it is a significant chunk of people who didn't cast uh, who, who didn't cast a vote this time. And, you know, like Haley, she is... She is persevering. She is steadily campaigning away down there. She raised another, I think, 16 million in campaign funds, which isn't huge, but it's enough to give her quite a bit more oxygen to keep going. Whereas the Trump campaign, he, he hasn't been there. I believe there's zero local TV advertising down there, which like, for instance, in, in, in New Hampshire and Iowa, it was, it was nonstop, the local TV adverts. So. You know, if she can, whether she won't win it, but if she can at least maybe uh, engineer a bit of a sort of a significant anti-Trump or pro-Haley percentage, however, however you want to interpret that, it'll make things interesting. Only up to a point, though, really. I mean, I was looking at I was looking at the um, uh, some of the recent polls from South Carolina before we before we came on today, and um, he's a good 35, 40 points ahead of her in South Carolina, which is her own state as well. It, it, it should be said. And then you look at the overall polls of of Republicans, and he's sort of three to one. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, then Super Tuesday follows uh, shortly after that, uh, March 5th. And I think that should be that should be it. So a lot of people have suggested that she's she's continuing not in order to win the nomination because she can't do that, but for other reasons. There's a couple of other reasons there could be. One could be she might be hedging her bets because who knows what happens to Donald Trump over the course of the rest of the year. And it's not out of the question the Republicans might have to cast around for another candidate. The other possibility is she might want to be vice president. Yeah, I think she may have burned that latter bridge once she started explicitly criticising Trump and you know, calling into question his his mental faculties, which he did not appreciate. I mean, he's very for someone who uh, for someone who dishes it out fairly frequently, he can be quite sensitive when he when he himself is attacked. So, I I, I don't think that's going to happen. But the other possibility here is that she may be she may be how realistic this is. I don't know, but she may be looking at twenty twenty eight because if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee and if he does lose this election. I think, you know, 
Trump then as a figure is is over. That particular chapter is is done, and she at least can uh, hold herself up as the Republican who stood up to him and to that movement. So maybe that will, like four years is an awful long time, maybe that will um, reflect well in, in years to come. I mean, it looks like a long, long enough bet, though, that whatever about Trump, even if Trump is over, whether Trumpism is over. I, I mean, I really noticed in a lot of the Vox Pops out of, out of Iowa and New Hampshire, the Trump supporters, including some of the people who you talked to as well, the way that they talked about Haley and the way that they talked about the Republican Party, they seem to see themselves as leading an insurgency to take over or radically reposition the Republican Party. And they would describe people like Haley as, as globalists. And they were saying things about Trump like he was the only president who hadn't you know, had a war in the course of his presidency in, in, in half a century, both of which are, are arguably true. So Haley, in that sense, represents the old George W. Bush side of Republican, doesn't she? And that, that's, it's a long way back for them to take back control of the party. Even if Trumpism remains alive after, after Trump disappears off the stage, without, without that persona, without that phenomenon, without that energy, I'm not sure who can replicate that. I mean, like to use a benign comparison, like if if whoever replaces Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, they can they can command their team to press high, but that doesn't mean they'll, that he'll be like Jurgen Klopp. You know, it just doesn't work like that. So who is going to actually become that persona? There's nobody really. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy was sort of auditioning for it, but I'm not sure anyone really takes him that seriously. I'm not sure he commands the same sort of zeal that Trump does, you know. Tucker Carlson? <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, that. I mean, you know, if we, if we think of the way in which these kind of figures now, and we know this not just from America, but populism around the world, they don't necessarily come through the regular political channels. They very often jump across out, out of media or entertainment, as Trump has done. That is true, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, he is completely... He has completely smashed that glass ceiling for all... Uh, for, for all manner and means now, I mean, you just, you don't have to be a traditional politician at all to, to, uh, I mean, Ramaswamy has no political, political background whatsoever. Um, so yeah, who knows? But I just, I, I just wonder about the lifespan of Trumpism in general in the, uh, in, in the long run. I know those values will persist for, for a long time, but I'm not sure that it'll be that easy to orchestrate people who, um, who hold those values dear into the sort of movement that we've witnessed over the last decade. So whatever about the merits or demerits of, of the primary system, the fact that these are, by comparisons of previous presidential elections, they're pretty low-powered primaries with the outcomes seemingly uh, pretty inevitable. It makes it a very, very long stretch, doesn't it, all the way through to the general election in November? It really does, yeah. And... I think what my sense of it now is that President Biden has accepted he's going to be running or he's, he, he wants to run. He's, he's I mean, that, against, uh, against Donald Trump and vice versa. And they're basically kind of beginning to address what will become the prevailing themes. And obviously, uh, immigration and the border is uh, a very, very big story and a big theme here. You know, Joe Biden has sort of framed this as a, a battle for democracy. And there is there's some debate as to 
who's actually listening to that message, you know, how deeply that message is penetrating or how much it's exciting, maybe moderate or indifferent uh, voters at this stage. But as you say, it's it's early days. I mean, I do think it'll be it'll be either side of the nominations before um, things become really heated. So immigration is clearly a big weakness for Biden. There are, you know, very large numbers of people coming over the southern border every day and the kind of the local officials aren't able to deal with them. And there's a uh, there's this process of them being sent up by by the Texas governor, being sent up to democratic voting cities up in the up in the northeast and causing all kinds of eruptions because of that. There's a general perception that Biden's made a mess of the border and that's a huge opportunity for for Trump, isn't it? Yeah, and it's one that he's been um, repeatedly um, lecturing on from the podium that, you know, that he that within the space of four years, the Biden administration undid all of his good work, that all they had to do was keep on keeping on and they couldn't even do that. And that's his argument. And, you know, obviously there's in the Senate tomorrow, there's a, there, there's a bill coming, coming to vote, a bipartisan bill which is sort of a miracle in itself um, between the, the Democrats and Republicans for like a massive, massive overhaul if passed um, on the immigration structure. It's a, it's a $118 billion bill. It's absolutely huge. And it's sort of, it's fallen foul of both moderate Democrats who fear that it's sort of too draconian and then Republicans, many of whom just argue that it's nowhere near uh, strong enough to to stem the tide of, of, of immigration. So whether it passes or not remains to be seen. But obviously, I mean, people would say that, that it suits Trump's agenda if this thing remains um, in flux between now and uh, Election Day. I, th- I think more than that, isn't it? Even I mean, Trump himself have sa- has said, "Don't pass it because you don't want to give any uh, any kudos to to Joe Biden." I mean, there's a kind of a possible jujitsu move here for Joe Biden if he's if he's young enough to be able to execute a jujitsu move, which is basically you blame a Republican Congress for not passing this legislation, and therefore you try and make it their problem. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he could do that, but again, well, some some of the issues, I mean. Like again, he's going to be speaking to the converted. I mean, he can say that, but it it it, it, it will only it'll only fall on certain ears. Whereas equally, Donald Trump will speak to his converted. So you, you know, it's very possible. It's almost like it's almost like radio chat, like this old style radio channels over here. It depends what frequency you're tuned into. That's what you're going to hear. You know. So in, in some regards, it doesn't really matter what they say because people are listening to specific stations, if you will, anyway. I mean, I think of what is of greater significance to the, the many thousands of people who find themselves in this situation where they're illegally crossing the border uh, out of, I mean, desperation um, and no other choice and all the other reasons that people do try and enter this country is what, what happens? And, you know, what if they actually do manage to push just through the Senate? You know, what if they actually manage to make progress on it? Which it seems, uh, it seems very unlikely right now. 
At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs, spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools, and public spaces. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. The other big question, obviously, in any in any election, an American election as well as the economy, and this sort of disjunction, I think we'd be a little bit familiar with this on this side of the Atlantic as well, wouldn't we? That on the one hand, you're being told that the economy is in great shape, it's gangbusters, employment is fantastic, and then people don't actually feel that. People don't feel it, no, and it's a very, very common source of conversation is just how much everything costs right now in this country, and it's where people are most keenly feeling it, I think, is at at petrol stations and in grocery stores. You know, uh, the inflation has hit has hit people's pockets uh, fairly fairly hard, particularly since COVID. Like, just food prices and service prices have not come down. And that's, that's why it's difficult for them to, or rather why the message that the national economy is doing well doesn't really penetrate. And certainly when you speak, when I spoke with people in... Um, in Iowa and New Hampshire, who were going along to the Trump rallies, that was a big issue for them. They just feel that things aren't as good as they used to be even four years ago. And when you throw in the other immigrations, the sense that Joe Biden has dragged America into 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 wars, whereas you know Trump proclaims that he managed to avoid all these wars, and the uh, escalating border issue, it just it has created a general sense of ill content. And do you sense that? I mean, obviously, one of the one of the challenges of your job now over the next few months is just getting a sense of the whole of America because the place is so bloody vast and differs. You know, as you said yourself, the weather in Washington is very different from the weather in Iowa. Florida is hugely different from Oregon. All these places in in between, and to get a sense of what's what's really going on in such a huge place is is very hard, isn't it? It is hard, yeah. I mean, like, without ducking the question, I mean, I think it's it's true to say that, you know, people do live in days. I mean, if you walk down the street here, you'll hear plenty of laughter. You know, you'll hear people and you'll see people having lunch and having coffees and having a nice time. All, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff is going on. You'll also see, and it's the first thing I noticed over here, I, you know, I was last here, I think it was a decade ago, you will see a lot of homelessness. And I know that's probably true of a lot of Western cities now, but you just see it in fairly fairly staggering numbers. And I was speaking with people who used to live in the city maybe eight, nine years ago who were back here. They were taken aback by that aspect of it as well. I know, for instance, here in Washington, there's, there's concern in the city about um, just the rise in violence, the number of carjackings, the number of muggings, the number of shootings that... Um, I mean, Trump, I think it was Indianola, he, he referred to Washington as a rat-infested shithole, um, which in itself is remarkable if any other former president described the nation's capital in, in, in that language, it, it, it would travel. But I, I don't think anyone even really noticed it. But for instance, so th- that's happening locally. There is that 
just that sense that things have fallen a wee bit, that things are out of control a wee bit. And if you were to make a generalization about the national mood, uh, I met a I met a friend from from Chicago in Ireland over over Christmas, and he just he spoke of the mood has been sort of just just kind of anxious, just that optimism that you associate with the United States is missing right now. I think it's, it's very it's very interesting. I mean, the homeless thing. I, I mean, I know you lived in the you lived in the states for a while in the 90s i lived there for a while in in the 80s and that was the first time i ever saw mass homelessness on the streets you know and then 20 years later i saw it uh, saw it coming to ireland but also that kind of language like rat infested shit all that's that's reminiscent of the 70s you know and that kind of era of kind of decay in new york and 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 places like that and i just i just wonder where that that malaise comes from. I see pieces that write about the, this combination of a housing crisis and this fentanyl, you know, wave of, of, of fentanyl addiction across the United States. This sense that kind of inequality is increasing rather than decreasing. I mean, I don't know if you get that in Washington. Washington is a strange place, isn't it? It's a place where politics is the is the business. So maybe it doesn't quite, you know, reflect that. It's not like an ordinary city in the sense of you move to the centre uh, or you walk towards the centre and you feel a sort of a heightened energy as you as you move. Do you know what I mean? Uh, if, say if you're if you're in London, it, it's not really like that. It's sort of it's kind of quiet and a bit spacey, and and, and I, I presume everyone's just working. You know, <laughs> I don't really know. And then no one really lives here. They all live out in out, out out in the suburbs. So it is a bit strange in that way. But I mean, it's interesting what you're saying here about um, that comparison to like New York in, in the 70s and 80s. The thing about that was then at least people could uh, afford uh, to live in the very middle of the city. They could afford the rent, whereas now rents and mortgages are astronomical. But there are still issues. For instance, here there's an area called Shaw in the, in, in the center of the city. It's... Um, kind of a college or university area but it's become gentrified it became gentrified over the past five or six years and house prices shot up and um you know it was on the way up but i think i believe from what i'm told um the covid period completely sort of shattered that that momentum the other thing that's happened is a lot of a lot of cafes and shops have begun to close down because you know, high rents, um, higher costs, fewer customers, and it becomes a sort of a vicious circle. So now you have an area where rent and property is extremely high, but the prevailing living conditions aren't as people imagined they would be, you know. And I think that, again, I can't say it, but I, I, I would sense that's, that's happening in quite a lot of places. I was reading interviews of people and again, there was kind of resonance with Ireland. And again, the thing that always strikes me about the United States is in some ways it's quite like us, but it's bigger. You know, the the extremes are bigger, the, the inequalities are bigger, the violence is greater, the opportunities are greater, all that all that kind of stuff. And so you hear a lot of people saying stuff that you hear people saying in Ireland as well. My kids can't afford somewhere to live. They don't have the same opportunities for their generation as we had for the last generation. And it it, it seems to be quite similar in some ways, but amplified or turbocharged in that kind of American sort of way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I think... That old manifest destiny notion um, is it's being challenged now in, in a huge way. And 
I think there's a, no more than Ireland. There's than in Ireland. There's a generation at least uh, of 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 kids who are uh, by and large uh, going to struggle to replicate the lifestyles that their that their parents enjoyed, and that came up too. You know, just that it's it's such an Irish issue. How are our children going to afford a house? I heard that if I heard that once in. In New Hampshire, more so than Iowa, I heard it a dozen times, you know. Um, those issues are very real. And then you throw in the exorbitant costs of getting a third level education here. Um, and yeah, it's... Um, it's a tough place to live. Yeah, it can be for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so then how does Joe Biden, who by all accounts, looking at the polls, if the election were held tomorrow, would lose... Uh, he's sort of kind of neck and neck, but a point or two behind Trump in the national polls. But maybe more importantly, he's he's definitely behind in the polls in the five or six states that will decide the election. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia. And how does he turn that around? I, don't, I mean, I don't know is the short answer. But I mean, I imagine if he was sitting here, he'd say, well, look, I beat him in 2020 and he did. And it is only February. And there is the sense that the Biden campaign is only now beginning to to gain momentum, but it's really it's it's early days. I know that one of his super PAC, his political action committees, they've put something like forty million aside for advertising to attack his um to attack Trump's legal woes. But that they're not gonna unveil that that advertising campaign until until the spring, until April or May. So I think you'll see it crank up and there's such a long way to go. I, I presume there is that hope as well that there are a lot of, there are a lot of moderate Americans out there. And this, I mean, we didn't even touch on this, but I mean, there is this tendency to lump um, all Trumpite Republicans into this uh, kind of, you know, MAGA movement. Uh, and, and there's a certain stereotype associated with that term. And really, to be honest, it's way more diverse than that. It, it just is. You know, you can meet a lot of very reasonable, nice people who are voting for Trump for, for reasons of their own. You, you can. Equally, there's an awful lot of Americans out there who are appalled by the man and by what he represents and by his politics and values who aren't necessarily thrilled with Biden. But there is this, I guess it's an anyone but Trump sort of vote. And I, I, I presume there is a hope that that can be harnessed closer to to the relevant election date. I mean, it's it's no secret that, you know, the voters don't want this particular election. They're not keen at all on a Trump-Biden contest, but they're being presented with it by the, by the two parties. In a way, that might almost feel as a symptom of the kind of malaise that you're talking about in America. It's, well, why are these two old guys still here? It's such a good question, and it's such a... It's such an extraordinary state of affairs. Uh, like, and it's not as though... You know, it's not as though nobody saw this coming down the tracks. But you can imagine being 18, 19, this is your first election. It is quite disheartening. And you do wonder as well how either man, presuming it's Biden and Trump, can connect in any meaningful way with, with, uh, with Americans of that generation. So, yeah, it is. It's a kind of a grim prospect. It's being billed as such here in the media. The other issue then is... Whichever one of them does win, you're going to have quite an aged figure in the White House for the next four years, which uh, which brings potential problems of its own. So 
yeah, it's not it's not the happiest moment in the the evolution of uh, of the United States. I mean, there is a kind of a almost unprecedented, I don't usually like using the word unprecedented, but it is partly unprecedented here. If Trump wins, he won't be actually be the uh, the first president to uh, get kicked out of office and then to get re-elected. Uh, table quiz specialists will be aware that Grover Cleveland did it back in, the, uh, back in the 19th century. But he'll be the first one who ran for president and won while in court facing criminal, criminal charges. Um, when I look at some of the coverage of that in the New York Times and and other places, it, it has a little bit of a ring of the kind of the the expectation that we remember from five or six years ago that uh, Robert Mueller was going to you know help to take care of Donald Trump for the country or that he was going to get impeached and none of those things ever happened. But the trial is going to bring another kind of an aspect to this whole thing as it pans out over or trials plural possibly to this whole thing as it pans out that that we've never really seen before. Yeah, I mean, it's a spectacle. If and how they play out will be will be fascinating. In terms of the ramifications, again, when you speak to his supporters about that, they they tend to go with the line that it's these trials and these indictments are almost part of the general democratic conspiracy to uh, to make sure Trump does not get back into office. So it won't. I mean. Been, there were so many exit polls carried out after the two after the caucuses and primaries in New Hampshire and Iowa, and a significant percentage of voters said they w- it wouldn't deter it wouldn't deter them from from voting for him. So I mean, yeah, it's another layer to what what's what's going to be a very strange and fascinating few months. And what's your plan? How how are you going to approach it over the over the next while? I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I, I, I do hope to go down to um, I, go, I hope to go down to South Carolina this weekend actually to see what's what's happening there. Uh, Nikki Haley has been campaigning, as I said, sort of quietly and diligently, and, and really just want to get a sense of of well, what the interest is like down there, apart from anything else. Because as I said, there there is this feeling nationally that it's just interest has kind of dwindled and. That the you know the game is over and people are just waiting for the final whistle to move on to the next thing you know so I think really once whenever Haley does Nikki Haley does bow out I think really then what the a year becomes about is issues and themes like we spoke a little bit about immigration Hugh but obviously um, abortion rights is going to be a, a massive issue in this election as well and the economy. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things down the road. There is. And of course, we should never forget the, uh, the CIA's Taylor Swift PSYOPs project, which is just about, to swing into, uh, just about to swing into action during the Super Bowl. But we have to do another full podcast on that at some stage. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Listen, we'll leave it there. But Keith, thanks very much for joining us and good luck with your um, fear and loathing on the campaign trail over the next few months. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, Mel. And that's it from us for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. Thanks to Keith as well. He'll be back with us over the course of a year and you can read all his journalism on irishtimes.com. We'll be back very soon indeed. Until then, thanks for listening.